All right, go ahead and turn to Psalm 96. Psalm 96. As we look at this psalm together, um, I feel like there are less of the sort of poetic devices that we've seen in some of the other psalms in terms of mm, like similes and metaphors so we don't see God is like a rock or God is a tempest so much in this psalm. We do see a lot of poetry in terms of parallelism, which we'll get more into under repeated thoughts. Uh, so in terms of the, the, the ones that we tend to notice under question one, do you see any, for example, in verse 7, any phrases that are sort of poetic that are standing for something else? Maybe an unusual way of putting a common idea. Yeah, families of the peoples would be what? Yeah. It's like in Jesus loves me all the people of the world. Right, that's basically what it's getting at. So, okay. Uh, what about verse 9? Yeah, the holy attire is fairly, <coughs> I think, fairly um, like they were supposed to actually come before God wearing certain things, There's potentially as a priest. Himself. Yeah, the being consecrated. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess the one I was seeing in verse 9 was maybe the second part, which says, Tremble before him all the earth. It's not earth as in like the ground. We're not talking an earthquake. It's the people again, yeah. Uh, verse 10, when it says the world is firmly established. Um, it is. Yeah, but again, I don't think he's talking so much like rocks and, and hills. I think he's talking about more broadly God upholding all things by, the, by his power, like that kind of idea. Maybe see in Colossians. Right. Yeah. 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 And then verses eleven and twelve. I think this is where we see more of that figurative kind of language. Let, yeah. Let the field exult. We tend not to think of like the cornfield just clapping its hands for joy, right? I've heard that. You have heard that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's this picture of all of creation praising God, right? But we do see a strong emphasis on repeated thoughts. There seems to be three sections of it. Uh, what's the first? Uh, a singing, yeah. Sing or proclaim, which we guess we also see in verse 12 where it says the trees will sing for joy, but it's repeated a lot in verses 1 and 2, right? And then the next section, starting in verse 7, what phrase do we see repeated a lot? Ascribe, right? Which could be translated bless or attribute or even it's parallel with the idea of worship in verse 9. Like yeah, there's an element of proclaiming, right? Um, and I think it's important to note that we're not adding anything to God when we do this. We're just recognizing things that are already true about Him and pointing them out to other people, right? Um, then in verses 11 and 12, there is, I guess we could just say the idea of joy, right? that's expressed by creation. But then there's an emphasis that kind of runs through the whole psalm of what is being sung about, praised, or rejoiced in. Like, look at verse 3. What, what is the subject of all this? Yeah, God's glory. And then it kind of goes into his character, like verse 6. 
splendor, majesty, strength, and beauty. Here's some descriptions of God. Or verse 13, he has righteousness and faithfulness that characterizes his judgment. So there's these different ways of describing praise and honor to God, and then there's the subject of what, why we're praising and honoring God. And then the idea of God, God's works, right? So he made things. Um, verse 5, he made the world, the heavens. Verse 10, he reigns. And verse 13, he comes to judge. So there's, the, there's like the activities of God. If the first part was his character, righteousness, faithfulness, strength, beauty, all that, this is more what God does. Uh, the type is the same type we've been looking at until we get to chapter 99. These are all sort of in the same uh, category, that it's a praise uh, psalm, but specifically sort of this subcategory of maybe being a kingship psalm, the Lord reigns as king, which is different from some of the covenant psalms where it emphasizes God's relationship with his human king. So this is God reigns as king. Some of the other ones are, here's my king whom I've established, and, and sometimes messianic, sometimes focused more just on, on David or his descendants. Some truths we see about God. Exactly. Okay, God's worthy of praise. And then God also is what? What are some statements about God that we see? <coughs> yeah, he's great. And there's also the things that he does. Makes the earth, rules over it, judges it. Mm -hmm. Good. What are some truths that we see about us in response to some of these things? What are we supposed to do? Definitely called to praise God, okay? Um, we're supposed to worship God as well, right? And then the entire earth is supposed to sing for joy about God coming to judge the earth. So we're looking forward to God's return to the earth, right? Um, which is interesting because that parallels a lot what we see in the New Testament. We're waiting for Jesus to come back to rule and to reign over all things, right? <coughs> so... Take a minute now, kind of bring all these ideas together. When we consider as God's people what it is we're supposed to do in response to God, I think we tend to fixate on the idea of worship, and sometimes we make it a noun. At least that's what a lot of churches do. They say we're going to do worship, right? And by worship, they mean singing. And while that is certainly part of it, it's broader than all of that. Um, it's broader than that in terms of where it takes place, who does it, and the subject that it is about. And so this starts out here. I think the first point in verses 1 through 6 is all people sing to the Lord. Now it says, sing to the Lord a new song. And... Um, Without getting too much into the weeds of the idea of the new song, there are people who argue that the new song is different. So like, mm, if you liked country music before you trusted Jesus, your new song doesn't sound like country music, right? But I think it's less of that point and more of finding new things to praise God about, particularly verse 2 of his salvation. So before this salvation takes place, you're not singing about it. Now it has taken place you have a new song about the things that God is doing. I think is more the idea, at least in this context. We talk about Psalm 42 more another time. I think it's Psalm 40 or 42. 
Um, but this idea of sing a new song, all the earth. Now, some songs are sung over and over and over again in the Bible, right? We'll see examples of that. And some songs are seeming to be new, both in quality and the point at which they start to be sung. But then if they continue to be sung for all of eternity, you know, the, the concept of new um, is a little hard for us to think about. But it says, sing to the Lord a new song, all the earth, bless his name, proclaim good tidings of his salvation. Whatever it was that we were singing before, now it is that we are singing to God about his work. So bless God's name and proclaim his salvation. Now again, when we bless God's name, that's parallel to verse 7, ascribe to the Lord all these things, say, hey, here's all the things that are true about God. We're supposed to do it, but it's not as though we're sort of um, stroking God's ego or helping him feel good about himself or making something true that wasn't true before. We're simply recognizing things that are already true, and we do that, verses 3 through 6, by proclaiming his glory and his work. So verse 3, tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among the people. And I think the first is who God is, and the second is what God does. So who is God? He's great above all gods or idols, verse 5. Or at the end of verse 4, he's to be feared above all gods, for all the gods are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. So why should we proclaim God's salvation? Because he's the only one who really saves. Think back to what we looked at in Isaiah, I think this past Sunday. God looks around, who can save? Nobody. So God rolls up his sleeve, steps in and does it, right? And so that's the same kind of picture that we have here. All the gods that the peoples worship, they're real in the sense that there are demons standing behind the idols, but they still are at best created beings represented by made things by people who are also made by the one true God. And so in contrast to that, God is the origin and source of all of these things that people end up worshiping falsely. So... God is great above all gods or idols. That's part of who he is. He made the heavens. That's part of what he does. And then it goes back to who he is. He's surrounded by splendor, majesty, strength, and beauty. And so as we think about these different qualities of who God is, that he reigns, he's strong, there is something beautiful and amazing about God and who he is. We catch glimpses of this when we see the sunset or the power of a thunderstorm or even natural disasters or even just... Uh, the changing season, all of these things are testaments to who God is that are represented also by what he has done. And he's surrounded by these things. And, um, you know, you get into Psalm 8, and it says, their line has gone out through the whole earth, all creation praising him, which we get to in verses 11 to 13. But God is surrounded by these things just because of who he is. So then in the middle part, it goes from all people sing to the Lord, and then all people worship the Lord, verses 7 through 10. Worship the Lord, all peoples are supposed to do this, for his glory and strength. Verse 7, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. God is glorious and God is powerful. We see this represented quite often in the Old Testament in the expression Lord of hosts. He's the God of armies. In contrast to say Nebuchadnezzar, who's the ruler of the known world. And Nebuchadnezzar says, look at all that I have done. And God says, no, I'm the Lord of hosts. You can go walk around and pretend to be a cow for seven years, right? God is great. All other human kings are, fall far short of his glory. And God is also strong. There's no limit to his ability to accomplish things. And so then again, ascribe the glory to his name. So if we worship the Lord, all peoples, for his glory and strength, that's the what we worship him for. 
And then how do we worship him? Worship in holiness with an offering and with fear. It says, bring an offering and come into his courts, verse 8. And so in this, it's the picture of coming into the temple. The people were supposed to bring their offering into the temple. And um, as they did that, to see whether that would be acceptable to God, obviously Cain brings an offering that's not acceptable to God because it's not what God said to bring. Um, I was just uh, talking uh, with students today about Acts 8, where it has the Ethiopian eunuch. And there was a sense in which his offering was, there's a question of whether it would be accepted because here he is someone who's unclean, he's a Gentile, who's an outcast because of his physical condition. Here's someone who is unlikely to have his offering accepted before God. But then he encounters Philip. Philip reads to him Isaiah 53. If he keeps reading three chapters later, he gets to Isaiah 56. And it says, the foreigner and the eunuch who has a right heart before me, I will accept his sacrifice and his offering, and he will be my servant. Same kind of idea here. All the nations are invited to come because also in Isaiah 56, God says, I will make all these things my uh, house of prayer for all the nations. God always intended for all peoples to come before him to bring an offering to worship and so forth. And so when it says in verse 9, worship in holy attire and tremble before him all the earth, there is that idea of consecration, of coming before God in a proper way. As we come to the New Testament, it becomes more clear that we're coming to worship God in spirit and in truth, that we don't need a temple in which to worship God. This church is not a temple. And God, to the extent that he's here with us when we gather, is also with us even when we're not gathered. And so while we need to gather, and there's something unique and special about that, God is not limited to this place or any other place. The sacrifice transitions from being an animal sacrifice, because Jesus has provided the final blood sacrifice for all of sin, to being a willing giving of self as both offering and servant. In the same way that parallels Jesus being the, as it talks about in Hebrews, the temple and the sacrifice and the priest and the God who provides all those things all at the same time. And there's an extent to which his people mirror that as well. And so we worship in holiness with an offering in fear. And there is a right attitude of reverence. And we talked about the balance of this last week. We sing for joy, but we also worship and bow down. There's exuberance and there's reverence, both of them at the same time, potentially. And then there's, uh, in the last little part here, verse 10, proclaiming God's unmovable kingship, that he is the judge of the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is established, it will not be moved. So all these pictures of the earth being the place that God reigns over, um, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool, all that sort of idea, it's basically the idea that God oversees it all and it's there and it's secure and it's placed where it needs to be by his power. And because he rules and reigns, he is in a unique position to do what it says in the last phrase of verse 10, to judge the peoples with equity, with uprightness. And this is a little bit different than fairness. Um, so during all the COVID stuff, the government says we're going to be fair. Everybody gets a check who meets certain qualifications for $2,000 or whatever it was, right? Well, that's great if you live in the Midwest and terrible if you live in New York City, right? because it goes a lot further for us than it does for them, and it goes even further if you live further out than if you live near the city, right? And so that was fair, but it wasn't equitable, right? And so God's justice is different because he can factor in all those things, 
knows all things, has the power to constrain all things, has the resources to accomplish all of it. So it's more than just fairness. It is actually an equitable judgment of the people uh, in terms of their sin, their behavior, what they need, all those sorts of things. And so then we come to verses 11 to 13 where it's, it goes back to all creation rejoicing in the Lord. So from the heavens to the earth, from the sea to the field and the trees, all creation is to rejoice in the Lord. And th we see this in Psalm 8. We see it in a number of other places in the Old Testament. We see it even in Romans 8 in the New Testament. All creation groans for the day when the creation will be redeemed, not just God's people. And so to the extent that the curse of sin is lifted in that moment, all of creation is going to rejoice and praise God. And the exact mechanism of doing that is not fully revealed. But it's interesting that Jesus said, if the people stop shouting Hosanna, the very rocks are going to cry out. I don't know if you ever stopped to think about that. Like God can raise up praise for himself from rocks that are just sitting on the side of the road. He's more than capable of making all creation rejoice at his coming in the end times. And the idea of the earth rejoicing is because God is coming to judge the world in righteousness and peoples in his faithfulness. And I think in Isaiah we talked about this idea that there is um, sort of the ground being cursed. Abel's blood cries out from the earth. The creation groans. The earth sort of rebels itself against the ungodliness that's poured out on top of it. And so there's a sense in which the earth will be judged and all will be set right. All creation will rejoice. But this emphasis on judgment is important because we tend not to think of it as a positive thing, right? Someone's coming to judge. Um, I was driving down the highway yesterday or today. And I saw a police car go by. Immediate thought, what did I do? I don't think I did anything, but what did I do, right? Right, and um, he pulled over another guy, and the guy knew he was getting pulled over because he pulled off before the lights even came on. So, um, But the point of that is to say, if you think that there is any possibility that you're going to be under the judgment, you're not welcoming it, right? So like we talked about on Sunday, the way that we can stand confidently uh, in the face of judgment is if we're rightly related to God, which is what Paul up in Acts 17 and he says God commands all people everywhere to repent and then he gives the why because he's appointed a day in which he'll judge the earth by the man he's appointed Jesus Christ and so if Jesus is coming to judge the earth the earth will rejoice those who are on the God's side will rejoice those who are experiencing the judgment are not going to rejoice because they're they're facing God's wrath we take all these things collectively and the idea of singing and worshiping and rejoicing, I think we can put them together in this sort of a phrase to say, worship your righteous king with joyful song. So worship your righteous king with joyful song. Worship, pointing out to other people that God is worthy of praise. And here's all the reasons why. Song, because the first part says to sing to him and sing and proclaim and, and tell everybody about all the things that he's done. It has a quality of being joyful. All of creation is rejoicing in God and what he's doing, even the fact that he's coming as king and as judge to judge the earth. And so as all these things come together, the point of this psalm, this kingship psalm, is worship 
your righteous king with joyful song. So what does that look like for you and I today? I mean, it could look like during the course of the week that we actually sing a song to God in the course of our day. Maybe just the words come to our mind because maybe you're at work and you can't sing it out loud. Maybe you're at a spot where you can sing it out loud. When we gather together, we sing praise to God. Uh, Colossians and Ephesians have an interesting way of putting it in that it says, let God's word dwell in you richly so that song spills forth out of you and encourages and admonishes the people around you. And so I think as we take this in light of what the New Testament says, the picture is something like, be so regularly meditating on God, who He is, what He's done, what sort of a God He is, the ways that He's worked in your life, all of that, that it spills forth in song and in praise and in worship all the time. Not just for an hour on Sunday, not even an hour, not just during the hour or two on Sunday morning, or maybe on Wednesday night, but all throughout the week. And so I think as we look at a psalm like this, we need to ask ourselves, do I find this happening often? And if I don't find it happening often, I mean, there's possibilities that we might say something like, well, I don't really like to sing, I don't have a good voice, all those sorts of things, and maybe there's a little bit of pride or lack of confidence that needs to be dealt with. But I think more often the problem is not Oh, I think I'm going to be embarrassed if I sing. The problem is more often, I don't have enough saturation of God and who He is in my heart and mind for it to spill out, right? So, my dad likes this joke about a towel. He says, what gets wetter the more it dries? A towel, right? The more soaked a towel gets, the more full of water that it is, it hits a saturation point where it just can't hold any more water. And then you hang it up in the shower, what does it do? It drips wash rag, whatever. It drips. Why? Because there's too much in there for it to stay in the thing that's holding it, right? So we're supposed to be like a towel or a sponge soaking up God and who He is so that then it just pours forth. So what does that then mean? It means we have to take time. It is so much easier to, unfortunately, it seems to be easier to watch a movie, to organize your tools, to get distracted thinking about a conversation that you had with somebody else. All these things kind of come in and interfere with us being so enraptured with God and who He is that um, it spills forth in song. There's another psalm where it talks about this idea of uh, in the watches of the night, God is our meditation, our thought. What tends to happen, at least for me, in the watches of the night is if I'm awake then, it's, why can't I sleep? Or here's the thing that's going on with the kids that I have to deal with, or all those sorts of things. But to the extent that our minds and our hearts are saturated with God and who He is, then even in those moments, we can be praising God and crying out in prayer to Him and all of those sorts of things. And so the bottom line is, if we're going to do this, we, our hearts and our minds have to be full of God and who He is. And there's just maybe practical steps that we have to take to see that accomplished because uh, there has to be input for us getting to the point of having that output. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we look at these truths about the fact that you are a worthy king, a righteous judge, one who deserves praise, may we think about those things often enough and deeply enough and uh, with enough content that we then uh, fulfill the admonition of this psalm to praise you, to worship you, to sing to you, to point those around us to you, and pray that you'd help us to do this well, even, even this week. In Christ's name, amen.